Welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi, guys. Hi, Simon. Hey, Simon. Today is the last show of the year, and to celebrate Christmas and the end of the year, we'll be reviewing a modern Christmas classic film, which our very own Vaughn selected, and then we'll be looking back on 2022, both in American politics and the last 12 months on this podcast. But before we go any further, I'd just like to wish a very Merry Christmas to our fabulous listeners. And to our equally fabulous co-host, I say the same. So Merry Christmas, guys. How are we feeling about Christmas this year? I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on Christmas. So I don't, I'm don't. i not a big fan of Christmas, personally. But yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I would say yeah, it's because, like, I didn't get enough presents between 98 and 02. <laughs> like, like, it picked up after that. But, like, I, <laughs> like, you know, my memory of that period has never, never left me, so. The, yeah. the bush effect <laughs> no it was it was between between the, the presidencies neither mm-hmm. party is to blame <laughs> or, or, it was, or it was on both parties heads maybe i don't know vaughn you've had some thoughts about christmas once or twice in your your career any thoughts on this one i have never once thought about christmas how dare you um yeah no i'm i love christmas i'm feeling good about it um as my any followers on Twitter would know, maybe also listeners. I don't know if I've mentioned it before. I spend Christmas alone and it's fantastic. I, I just get drunk every day. It's wonderful. So <laughs> I'm here with my mulled wine today. Well, that is good to hear. And um, we'll be going into a Christmas film in a second. And um, yeah, um, you're, as your career progresses, you get more and more outlets to talk about Christmas films uh, on. So that's exciting, isn't it? It, it is indeed. Um, what Simon is goading me into saying is that I was recently interviewed by NPR um, and also published in the Washington Post in the Made by History section, uh, both about Christmas films and evolutions of Christmas films through time and how we see in the one article, um, Miracle on 34th Street now and whether it still has the same resonance that it did in '47. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Wow. Get reading those articles, people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, thank you for that, Vaughn. Thank you for playing ball. I know you don't mm-hmm. like to talk about yourself, but, you know. You're not. Just, well, you're going to have to get fucking used to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> uh, because you're semi-famous and we're going to get, <laughs> we're going to use that as much as we possibly can. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little I'm a little weird guy I'm not famous I'm like Daniel Radcliffe we're an academic that's what I am just a weird little guy doing my weird little things (laughs) well there's an image okay so our (laughs) our our film today is Klaus from from 2019 and and people might remember who listened to the podcast might remember the Vaughn has has talked about this previously on Impressions of America I think on a, a previous Christmas episode and um yeah I I I asked Vaughn um previously in a in a group chat um which christmas film shall we talk about for this christmas episode and vaughn very quickly said let's let's do uh let's do klaus so before i ask her about why we we did that i'll just give a very quick introduction for anyone who's not seen the film so klaus is a 2019 spanish American. sorry you're gonna do spoilers 
Oh yeah, we are going to do spoilers, I assume. Um, it's a really gonna... good film, and I really want people to like watch it fresh. So if you haven't yeah. seen it, go watch it and then come back to this. That's a very good point. <laughs> um, and just look at that spirit of generosity from from Vaughn. Um, yes, good good idea. Pa- pause pause it. Put on Klaus and, and come back. <laughs> Okay, so Klaus is a 2019 Spanish-American Netflix animated Christmas film written and directed by Sergio Pablos, and um, voice the voice cast includes uh, Jason Schwartzman, J.K. Simmons, Rashida Jones, Norm Macdonald, and Joan, Joan Cusack. The film is set in 19th century Norway and is centred on Jesper, a young lazy postman and son of the Royal Postmaster General, who was sent by his father to the northern island town of Smyrensburg. I think that's about as good as I can say it, with the task of posting 6,000 letters within a year. However, when Jesper gets to Smearensburg, he finds that the town has no interest in sending letters and instead spends most of its time having a sort of ongoing battle between uh, two neighbouring um, or two, two warring sides on the island. Um, Jesper quickly starts to interact with the townsfolk and soon he, he meets his most interesting and mysterious resident, which is a toy maker named Klaus. So that's the, the basic setup for the film. Fawn, why were you so enthusiastic to, to pick this film to talk about? I love this film. I think it's wonderful in so many different ways um, that we'll definitely get into. I think it's very inspirational. I think it's one of the most inspirational Christmas films um, ever made, maybe one of the best ones ever made as well. Um, you You just mentioned that it was it was directed and written by Sergio Pablos. Um, And there's a bit more to that. This film was his like passion project. It's a completely hand-drawn animated film, which is very rare nowadays. Um, And you can really see that when you watch it, you can see the the care and the love that went into every single uh, frame of the film. And because it was his passion project and it was something that he did not want to compromise on, Sergio Pablos was shopping this around for 15 years while it was in development and ultimately made his own production studio specifically so that he could make Klaus the way he wanted it. Um, The Sergio Pablos production studio is in Madrid and Netflix eventually signed on to host the film um, for part of the, the production funding and distribution rights but it's it's such a labor of love and you really do feel that throughout the entire film um I didn't know that the first time I watched it and I loved it the first time but then doing some research about it really just every time I watch it 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 feels like the spirit of Christmas itself not just in the content of the film um which I know is a very cheesy thing to say, but it's really a gorgeous, stunning movie. Um, the message is amazing. The visuals are unreal. The cast are phenomenal and excellently um, cast did. <laughs> it's just, it's really a wonderful film. Did you guys enjoy it? Um, Toby, do you want to answer that question first? No, I'll go after you. I don't know why at 45, um, I'm having to watch children. <laughs> I'm, I'm 45 and child, childless watching children's movies. You know, I've, I've, I've done stuff in Libya. I, why, why am I watching children? <laughs> and you know, when I was talking to Vaughn uh, about this, 
And she was like, yo, you know, it's for everyone. And the more I went into the film, the more children were in the film. I was like, what, what is this? Are films with children automatically children's films? With that many children. It's got, it's got <laughs> but um, all, all round, I think... No, I, I quite like the movie. I think it was right. Um, I, I, you know, I really liked the development of the myth of Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it started, I didn't, you know, I was like, when's this Santa Claus stuff going to start happening? Because it was quite, quite distant and quite odd. It was mm-hmm. conceptually quite, you know, interesting. It, it almost felt like a, one of these, like, um, was it Miyazaki? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Movies. It's set in this sort of like steampunk nowhere where you don't really have great reference points for anything that are happening, but it naturally led into the, mm-hmm. the relationship between uh, the main character and the Klaus character. And um, and yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it on the level of this is a p- potential idea for the creation of of Christmas and that, that the myth could start like this and it could be immortalized and, you know, all the things from like uh, his laugh to, you know, the, the, the production of the, the toys and the, the, you know, dumb things like the, the, the sled and the, and the reindeer and all these kinds of ideas that get put on top of each other. I thought that was, that was interesting. I thought the dynamic uh, in the, the town was was quite interesting between the the warring uh the warring groups and yeah and i thought as you know the film with itself uh with its runtime you know it's quite it's quite short it, it, but it's it's good it, it leaves you feeling good no i thought it was a good movie yeah so simon simon before you go mm-hmm. i just want to say one thing and then we'll talk about a second thing later but that's exactly one of the other reasons i wanted to talk about klaus is that this telling of the myth of Santa Claus is completely original. And that is something that's incredibly rare in Christmas films to reinvent the myth of Santa. Other ones will add to it or forego it entirely, like the origin story of Santa Claus. Um, But what Sergio Pablos does here is completely construct a mythology around how Christmas became associated with presents and how Santa Claus became associated with that, how um, the kind of morale morality of children plays into it, the the other kind of um, playful things like his laugh and the sleigh and the reindeer that the sleigh is flying is because they they launch off a cliff or something like it's it's so clever in its construction of touchstones that we do understand and that we know to be associated with Santa, but it's a completely original story. And that is part of why he did not want to compromise on it because he wanted to do this. And it feels, especially with the setting in the film and the um, the tribe of people who speak Sami, mm-hmm. it feels as though it is like a Nordic like almost ancient tradition for Santa, that this is a mythology that is known in a Nordic region, but it's not. Um, and to be able to construct a myth like that is is a very rare quality 
and trait. And I think he absolutely nailed it in this film. Yeah, I um I I, I agree. Um, I think I watched this either I think it might have been last year on Vaughn's recommendation. I remember really liking it, but I didn't before watching the film, I sort of remembered little parts of it rather than like the the, the narrative arc of it. And then as the film got going, I remember just how much I liked it and how, how much certain things stood out from certain visual elements and chase scenes and things like that to, mm-hmm. to smaller, more, more touching moments. And yeah, I agree the this this mythology uh, building for, for Santa Claus. I, I wrote down some of the, the points they had from, from giving presents to squeezing in, in chimneys, leaving cookies mm-hmm. for Santa, Cole giving to bad kids, Santa knows when you've been bad or good, writing letters to Santa, Santa flying on a sleigh with magical reindeer, um, each children, uh, each child getting a toy on Christmas Day, Santa's red costume. That, that was just some of them. I think there were some more, but all, all that kind of continued to add and build to this mythology and this idea that this was because at one point in the film they talk about oh well next year we can kind of expand to more towns and then the year after that more and more mm-hmm. and it's a it's a it's a, a lovely idea that, that that's how it was created and that the the santa claus mythology has some sort of truth to it uh, to some degree and it was sort of something that, that spread from you know uh, almost mystic mystical northern regions of the world uh, out to the rest rather than you know some of the um, other elements that we we know about such as you know coca-cola and, and the red costume and, and things like that so um, the modern mythology of Santa element was was really interesting and then I wrote down a, a few other things which again sort of tie in with some of the the positive nature of the film and, and some things that kind of stood out as to why I thought Vaughn might highlight this film such as the value of the education <laughs> the value of the post office um one of the things they talk about in the film is a simple act of kindness always sparks another and that the positive transformation of the town due to having some positivity to work towards in this case it was the prospect of children getting toys and having some sort of fun and enjoyment um in in sort of the, the darker world that had surrounded them due to the the ongoing um battles that had faced the, the town due to the the two warring sides and then just the, the the kind of one note on that, I guess, was that the you had the society that was built around this ongoing war and sticking to traditions over improving society for the better. And, you know, you can take whatever social um, political readings you want from this kind of stuff. But on, on a very basic level, th- this idea of, um, you know, put, putting down ancient traditions and, um, you know, uh, things that are generally negative in order for maybe a more simplistic and, and trying to, you know, the happiness of a child over the, the traditions of a town is, you know, it's a nice message to, to teach the children and, and hopefully something that, that might have some value. So um, Vaughn, was, was there more things you wanted to cover on any of the stuff I pointed out there? Yes. Um, so spot on for knowing that I would appreciate the shout outs for education and the postal system. <laughs> <laughs> The, the film is really about that. So the children um, in the town are being kind of socially abused. They're, the town is made up of two warring families and they've been warring for generations and centuries and, and whatever and don't even really know why they are fighting. And the children 
question it because they're children and they just want to like play with their neighbors when they have toys around and they want to hang out and there's a scene where the the heads of the families are explaining this long history of fighting and saying that it's their heritage and why would you go against your own your own bloodlines and your own heritage just to play with this enemy and that is such a poignant powerful message in itself and we'll get more into that but the education part of it stems out of this that the children want to be more enlightened and partly it's because they want to be able to write to send klaus letters so that they get toys but it's also stemmed by this this wanting to play with other kids they want toys so that they can share their toys and so they start going to school and there's a very robust education system that develops throughout the film and re-inspires the teacher who is there to actually do her job and, and inspire and educate the youth. The other side of that is that as the children are being educated and enlightened, they are being rewarded for it with the toys and the kinship that they are they're kind of forcing their parents to have because of their good deeds with the other children from the other family so it develops into this town-wide kind of revolt against the heritage tradition of the warring clans and i find it so beautiful and inspiring that this film is about letting children learn so that they can change the world for the better and put an end to things that are harming not only them but their parents and their town and their world as they see it. I think it's a message that we don't really get in many Christmas films. A lot of the time, um, for example with Miracle on 34th Street, that has a kind of similar narrative of Santa Claus, or inverted narrative, of Santa Claus trying to teach Susan to believe in fairy tales and make-believe and goodness and strangers and all of those things. And he's really impressing on her to view the world how he views the world. And you get a lot of adults in that film and in other Christmas films teaching children how to view the world. And this one really, Klaus really takes a different stance and says, we should step back and learn from the kids, give them the resources so that they can do what they need to do to make the world a better place. And I, I think it's just such a wonderful film for that message. Oh, that, that is a, an interesting take on it. Um, one question I had for you, Vaughn, as someone who is, you know, studying Christmas films, who thinks about Christmas films, who has a, a, a love and a knowledge for Christmas films, is when you view a film like this, how do you view the the nature of Christmas and Christmas on film as the element of sort of gift giving because there is a a love and appreciation between people and there is a uh, you know wanting to you know better society in in some way. So in, in Klaus, for instance, you know the, the children coming together to to essentially having you know laughter and joy and and, and uh, happiness in their lives, how, how how do you sort of counter that with the 
more sort of economic reality of of Christmas and how that is sometimes or sometimes not um, displayed in in Christmas films and how the the sort of you know big industrial corporate nature of Christmas has sort of enveloped the pure you know uh, moment of joy gift giving um, part of it. So if I understand your question, um, you're asking how I feel with the real world knowledge that Christmas is a commercialized. Yes, exactly. So that's a much better way of putting it. The the sort of commercialized nature of of gift giving and how how it's become that. And we have everything, you know, Black Friday and we have these Mm -hmm. mad rushes to to seemingly sort of one up each other with with presents or we there's a, a, a societal element to that or has been for the last 20 or 40 years or so um and you sort of how how is that sort of balanced out in 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 the films you see and how they depict things like gift giving and whether or not it's a maybe i don't know twee or an accurate version of of um what has now become a, a more in, industrialized um industry so firstly, I would argue that uh, the commercialization of Christmas has been around for at least a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even more with Santa Claus's in department stores, which started in it's contested, but the late 1800s um, around the 1880s or 1890s is when the first Santa mm-hmm. Claus in department stores. But department stores have also been having their um, Christmas store windows and uh, like Dickens Village is a, it it was like a kind of Christmas marketplace in a department store in, I believe, Illinois in the mid 1800s. Um, So like shopping and Christmas have been tied together for a very long time since capitalism really took hold post-industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. With that said, or around industrial revolution. With that said, though, um, I suppose that, that that's part of the question I was having because this is set in what the nineteenth century. Is that correct? Um, it, yeah, it's that. Yeah. So I, again, just trying to take into account that if you have this such long history of of sort of the the financial element of it and the the selling nature of it and how mm-hmm. you know is there a sort of falsehood to this this particular christmas myth i know i know it's a creation of one but do, are you trying to wrestle these questions when you look at these types of films so yes and no because obviously commercialization is a factor of christmas there is an expectation to give and receive gifts at christmas and hollywood has done its part to make sure that those gifts need to be bought and not made or re-gifted or whatever. Um, that's that's definitely a hallmark of Christmas films, Hollywood Christmas films, that the best gifts are the ones that are purchased. Um, whether that's the narrative or not, it it is the subtext of those films. And we can talk more about that if you want. But that's the narrative, that purchased gifts are the best gifts. in a Christmas film that has a place to purchase them. Let's mm-hmm. make a stipulation as well, because some Christmas films don't, like Klaus. 
there there really isn't a kind of mercantile element to Klaus. There there are some references to money, like he needs money to prove that he has sold as many or sent as many letters as he needs, etc. And the teacher, uh, Miss Alva, she needs money to be able to leave this island. But it's really not a feature of the film um, and definitely not any part of the Christmas element of the film. So I do think about the commercialization of Christmas, especially in a macro lens of looking at films, because films are money makers. They're expensive to make and normally do quite well financially um, on the other end of production. So in itself, whether it claims to be anti-commercial or not, like Miracle on 34th Street does, it's still a commercial venture in itself. So there is always going to be that lens on it. And commercialization is always going to be a part of Christmas. But I don't think that commercialization will ever replace the human feeling of giving a gift to someone you love that you know they will appreciate. Like that is a truly human quality. And I think one of the best parts of Christmas, I love giving things to people and they don't need to be bought. Like Christmas cookies are something that I send to my friends and my co-hosts every year. I'd like uh, to make sure that was a, a clear distinction between friends and co <laughs> Yes. Yeah, you are different classes. Um, <laughs> and and that, that brings me joy. And it brings a lot of people joy to give gifts to people they love. I don't think that will ever not be an element of Christmas, especially the secular Christmas that we've created. Because um, I spoke with... Ian Saxine about this on his Mainly History podcast uh, for his Christmas special. And the, um, the phrase, they're taking Christ out of Christmas, is something that gets thrown out around a lot. And they're like, well, what's left if you take Christ out of Christmas? Well, a hell of a lot is left. And it's, it's the good-spirited humane nature of gift giving and appreciation and gratitude and all of these warm loving qualities that are inherent with the Christmas spirit and the Christmas season um and I think you get a lot of that out of Klaus too where it really highlights why this holiday has persisted so long because you do feel happier at Christmas even if you don't, I'm not religious in any sense. I wasn't raised with religion. Um, I don't practice any sort of religion. But I study Christmas, and I specifically study the secular side of Christmas that is portrayed in Hollywood films for a financial commercial reason. But there's, there's an element to it that you just cannot separate from the human. Um, and I think the human quality of Christmas will always betray the commercialist nature of it. So this is a very long rambling mulled wine answer, but I do think about it. It definitely does impact my analysis of Christmas films, the commercialist nature. But if the film captures the human qualities, the kindness, the generosity, the 
simple joys of what Christmas can mean to people, I, I balance it out. That's good. Uh, and um, I, I, so, I mean, I, I guess that the, and you've answered the, the question very well there. I guess what I was just trying to get at, get at, although struggling to put the words together, although I don't have alcohol as an excuse for, for that, sadly, is that as someone who is so um, academically deep, especially right now, doing your dissertation and, and, and writing articles about Christmas films, and as someone who is, you know, um, so vocal in, in, in standing up to, to certain parts of um, sort of commercial aspects or other aspects relating to, um, you know, big industry making, making money from people. Um, yeah, how it kind of feels to watch a Christmas film. And then, you know, are you kind of internally gazing at, at things like commercialization or viewing how a film is is presenting the ideas of gift giving and whether or not it's sort of a, a true noble act or whether or not it's a sort of presentation of 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 spending money as a as a way to 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 show love kind of thing. So no you, you answered the question, but I, I do find it interesting us talking about Christmas films and having someone who's such a an, an expert on it, how, how you're kind of constantly reviewing and how that's constantly evolving as you study more and, and think about these things more. Um do do mm. you do you think do you think even in the last, last sort of two or three years since you last what or since you first watched Klaus, do you think your how you view Christmas films has has changed even in that time? Um like for fun, you mean? Yeah, just like if you were to just stick on a Christmas film, like if love actually comes yeah. on and you you start talking about the war on terror or something, you know. Do, do, do you know right it's a terrorism film <laughs> exactly so you know is this I, I know it's kind of hard to say you know how does one immediately view all media but for someone who's specifically yeah, studying no, no. a topic do you do you fear yourself kind of continuously visiting and revisiting ideas in different ways even though you just want to stick something on for for pleasure yeah no it's a fair question um I have somewhat ruined them for myself <laughs> it <laughs> But also, I'm a, I'm a weird little guy, as I said, and I really fucking love what I do. So it's fun for me to dissect a film, even when I'm sitting there alone watching it and it's not for work. And I'm just like, oh, I love this element of this film. Like, that's my favorite thing to do. So I've ruined it, but in a way that I love. Um, it's very hard to just sit there and, like, watch a film. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, I do. I think about all of these elements of Christmas films um, as I'm watching them. And Klaus, as I said, the first time I watched it, I really enjoyed it. But then after I did some more research into the production of it and the how much Sergio Pablos put into this film, um, that really impacted my viewing. But I think my my ideas on the importance and inspiration of it have been pretty consistent maybe only growing more appreciative over the last few years as youth movements in the real world are gaining steam and followers and especially after the midterms this year with the massive turnout of youth voters I I find even more inspiration in it I think it's extremely reflective of the world that we're in right now with with the youths showing up and demanding education um demanding quality education so that they can change the world 
and put to rest a lot of the social ills and social abuses that have just been the way they are. Like, that's just how we do things. And the youngest generation is like, well, fuck that. We can do we can do it differently. So why aren't we doing it differently to benefit more people? And I think it's really wonderful. Look at how many unions have cropped, popped up in the last year. Starbucks has been unionized to fuck. It's amazing. Like the youth turnout and leadership in the last couple of years is really one of the things that gives me the most hope about the future. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really well reflected in Klaus. I was going to ask, do you think we'll see more um, Christmas films that, that show Santa's elves unionizing? Um, off, off oh my God. So there was one this year, um, Boss Baby Christmas Bonus. Yes, I think you, you. I saw a tweet about this. I did tweet about it. <laughs> I did indeed. The, the, they unionize in the elves unionize in Boss Baby Christmas Bonus. Um, and like, full disclosure, I fucking love Boss Baby like, <laughs> from, from just an enjoyment standpoint, but also as a film analyst. I love Boss Baby. I think it's incredible content. I've seen all of the films and the full series. It's wonderful. Um, And I would highly recommend it to anyone, except for Toby, because he doesn't like kids things, apparently. Even though I think you would absolutely love this. Yes, but but who voices the the Boss Baby? In the films? Uh Sorry, you broke up there a bit. Can you say that again, Will? In the films, Alec Baldwin. You see, friend of the show, friend of Toby. <laughs> I, I like Alec Baldwin. I mean, I haven't seen Boss Baby, so I'm unlikely to see all the like the <laughs> discover packs and yeah, editions and stuff like that. But yeah, no, no, I mean, it sounds interesting. I I really love Boss Baby because it's so tongue in cheek about capitalism and like the corporate world, and it's absolutely hilarious. Like he calls Santa a, a commie and a hippie. And says when he's delivering presents, it's a home invasion. Like, I I love these. I love those, those like, tongue-in-cheek analyses. Because if we're, if we're going to get real with it, that is them making fun of earlier depictions of Christmas films that I study in my dissertation. The idea that Santa is a communist was very real to the House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1947. 75 years ago and now in 2022 boss baby christmas bonus is calling them the fuck out for it and saying that's ridiculous and i love that social through line i love that commentary highly recommend it why is santa not commie i mean he's wearing red (laughs) um because he has means testing for his gifts Ah, uh, of course, yeah. The bad kids. Mm. Yes, and, and Vaughn is very pro means testing, so that that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was I was going to say I, I I've never seen the Boss Baby um films or, or extension Dramatic universe, universe, but it is basically born from Thirty Rock, as far as I can gather. So therefore, yeah. I'm I'm naturally interested in it. Um, Honestly, it's so good. Like, I really enjoy it. The series is even better than the films because they, they're, it's on Netflix and they have like free reign. So they go really hard about um, making fun of corporations and the kind of 
generic corporate guy. It's really, really exceptional social and political or cultural commentary. Well, really I, I look forward to your your post in the Washington Post about bo- Boss Baby. That that <laughs> that really would be a a, a new direction to take media uh, writing. Um, right. Is there anything else we'd like to add on on Klaus before we, before we finish up and and move on to the last couple of things to to mention on the on today's show? Um, J.K. Simmons is a perfect Santa Claus, and he's going to be in live action as Santa Claus soon, and I cannot wait. Yeah, I do like J.K. Simmons, and yeah, he does a very good, very good voice performance in Klaus. So, yep, yeah. absolutely agreed. Um, okay, and this was Norm Macdonald's final role, and I think he's just delightful in this film. Oh, he's fantastic in this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And he almost no. acts like, like he knows that everything is going to happen as well. Mm-hmm. Not only because because of the the post man have come in before, but he's he also like you know with the relationship between the postman and his father, he like said some things about oh this isn't going to build resentment. He's like, like he sort of understands the dynamics of relationships that he shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So he's almost acts like a, as like not a narrator but like almost like in the middle. That's a good point, Toby. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that that is an interesting interesting view on that character. Um, every yeah. part of this film is so well thought out it's so good like every time you watch it it just gets better in my opinion really, and it looks beautiful as well it's so gorgeous and the scenes where there's there's like magic wind blowing around and it's the spirit of Klaus's um, late wife it's just fucking gorgeous like it should have it should have received every single award there is just all of them. It's so all good. the awards. Yes, every award, every award, best documentary. Um. Okay. So, um. There's a couple more. Th- a couple more th- research into the Sami people, and that is actual Sami language. Like, so it could be. It could be documentary. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Um. So moving on from Klaus, which we all really enjoyed. Um. There's just sort of a couple of different topics to, to round out off this episode and round off this year. So I'd like to just quickly kind of talk about the year, which was a shit show and the year on the podcast, which wasn't a shit show. So in order for us not to completely end on a bummer, I thought we could do the sort of year in politics and, and year in sort of American yeah. media first, and then we can finish off by talking about how much we, we enjoyed the, the last 12 months of actually doing shows. So the last twelve, the last twelve months in America, and just sort of, sort of wider um, studies of, of what the fuck is going on, has included um, a variety of topics. I've written a few of them down. Obviously, there's far too much to cover, but just as headline names of things. So, everything from from Biden's presidency to just keeping on 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 top of what's going on with with Trump to the growing DeSantis movement in in. In, well, not not just in the Florida sort of local scene, but in sort of the wider national scene within the Republican Party, we had um, the removal of abortion rights through the Supreme Court ruling. We had the midterm elections and a surprisingly um, good outturn for for Biden in in that regard. We had Disney doing a lot of stuff, including uh, not opposing and then opposing but too late the, the "Don't Say Gay" bill. We had them having Bob Chapek just fucking things up for the last 18 months or whatever yeah. he's been doing and That's then being true, being replaced by Bob Iger and then having to see a bunch of people on Twitter going daddy's home 
in <laughs> reference to Bob Iger, which is something. <laughs> and then Elon Musk buying Twitter and just the absolute, I don't know how to describe it, just absolute sort of fuck sale that's going on right now with the the, the destruction of, of Twitter and the destruction of um, Elon Musk's empire based on the stock price of, of Tesla's stock right now. So um, yeah, bunch of stuff. Guys, do you want to kick us off anywhere? Yeah, it's been a shit show. It's been a hell of a lot of things. But um, there's some good news that you left out that is very recent. The um, House Committee on January 6th recommended mm. Donald Trump for criminal charges on four counts. And also recommended that he should not be able to run for president. So that's good news if DOJ takes it. If yeah, not, I think it's the standard for incitement's pretty high. He's, he's not gonna, they're not gonna get him on that. I don't think. Um, I don't know if they would have recommended it if it wasn't. No, I don't. I think that I think the Democrats wanted them to recommend it, but I don't think they're going to be able to get him on that on that charge. Just because it's not like he told them to, you know, oh, let's go and. Let's hang my pencil. Right. Yeah. And yeah. even then, even if he said that, it would, you know, it's, it's, then you'd be able to get the standard would be the precedent would be set that you'd be able to get anyone on saying anything, really. It wouldn't be. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm not, not even that I don't think that he's guilty of. I think absolutely morally, ethically. But as I say, it's a hard charge for them to, to land, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, th- I think it is important though that the Democrats did want it, but the Republicans also voted for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and it's seen. I know Mitch McConnell has been distancing himself over the last twelve months or so, but just seeing his continued comments about so the diminished nature of of Trump within the party and maybe not being able to run and, and things like that, it is fascinating to see um, if anyone more on the Republican side are going to distance themselves because from what we can gather republicans generally just back whoever they think can win and you know prior to trump taking over they a lot of them were against trump and then once trump became the person who held all the power they all moved over to trump you know such as um ted cruz and in texas and now they seem it seems like there's some split between the republicans as to which way to go um my guess is that a bunch of them probably won't formally come out and say anything against trump and um it it's fascinating to see who who still kind of holds the voting power for you know that sort of 25 percent or 30 percent of those 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 maga people you know would they actually vote for a desantis or not i, I don't know um i don't know it, it seems like for me it, it seems like it's a no-brainer but and i obviously the poll came out wasn't it like um mm-hmm. desantis leads them Dude's Trump by like 23 points. Yep. Which is pretty comprehensive, but we don't know. I mean, the, the campaign season hasn't really started. I think there was another poll that showed that DeSantis leads in terms of positive sentiment, uh, Trump by like 10 points. I mean, they're both at like 70 points plus, but yeah. in terms of uh, Republicans, like he's 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 really, really popular. Um, so that's that sort of suggests that um, that he is the stronger candidate. But, you know, I mean, who knows when the campaign really starts and, and Trump doesn't really seem to be getting a lot of traction in terms of his, tw- you know, not tweets, but 
mm-hmm. in terms of his like um internet comments these days um yeah i don't know but i i i i do think that um the midterms are really great for the democrats i mean it's as great um basically as as things have been in a midterm for the last century almost you know i mean it's it's it's, it's such a it's such a rousing success and especially as um Biden's actual um, sentiment towards him is is not that great, but he doesn't track with the party. The party is doing really well, and also um, people are basically saying that extremists uh, are bad for for the Republican Party, and people basically want an um, an enema to get rid of some of the weirdest and strangest candidates uh, in in Congress. And I, I think that's great as well. I think overall, it's probably been a good good year although i think the desantis thing um as we go into the next two years might end up being really bad for the democrats because i think that he's basically created two desantises i mean he launches his his whole political career through that ad with his kid reading you know trump manuals to his kid he but he's also kind of governed responsibly in Florida. And so this this addition between like good governance and like playing to the crowd and owning the libs, mm-hmm. it might end up beating Trump and, and beating Biden. And that's not good. That wouldn't be good. Uh, but yeah, like Ian, you know, what Ian said has given me some pause, but also I'm just I'm just not sure about I'm, I'm not sure if Trump would go third party because he doesn't like he's not brand distinct from the Republicans in any in any way. It would just be you're like someone brought up the 1912 election and Theodore Roosevelt splitting from William Howard Taft and William Howard Taft actually finishing third, which is probably the most progressive maybe the most progressive election in American history, but Theodore Roosevelt had a distinct brand from Taft and not just physically and within himself, but also in terms of his policies, he was really progressive, probably more progressive than the Democrat. But Trump would just be just, he would just be split in the Republic. It'd just be an act of complete narcissism that would have no, no distinction for for the country or no no turn for the country and i just don't know if i just don't know if trump is capable of doing it yeah i think we don't as people who don't want the republicans to win i think we'd all be delighted if trump did run a third party candidate because it could only damage um whoever the republicans have picked most likely desantis um and it would yeah cannibalize that 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 section of, of the voting body I think he he has the he has the internal kind of need to run, be that as a Republican or not. But I just don't know if him as an independent or him taking over a smaller party and being their candidate. Um, I don't know. They just wouldn't have the infrastructure to, to build a successful campaign around and they would have to basically just build off Trump doing, you know, speeches and and using media personality to to essentially uh, become a, a party unto itself and 
I suppose you can never discount Trump truly considering what he's achieved previously. But I think without the Republican Party, I just don't think there's any path for him winning. I think there's a very, very small chance of him winning with the Republican Party, but without. Um, I, and I, I, I just don't know what the Republicans are doing because there's just no there's no ideological distance between any of this. It's just mm-hmm. like some people want to tuck their shirts in and some people don't it's not like there's nothing to be gained from 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 any of this like you don't need marjorie taylor green you've already got you know kevin mccarthy in there he's very very conservative like you know we hear about people challenging kevin mccarthy in the house we hear all this stuff and it's not like it's Rand paul and the libertarians like it was, you know, Scott Walker, like it was 10 years ago. It's just people with tinfoil hats, mm-hmm. but who are just saying the same thing that the average Republican is saying. So there's not, there's nothing to be gained. Like I, I listened to Mark, I probably mentioned it before, where right? it was Mark Levin talking about how, you know, like just going through all, all these elections and, and cherry picking some elections where some of the extremists won or or they ran Democrats close uh, in, in a race that they didn't think that they were going to be close in. And just thinking like these people aren't more conservative or whatever. They're just crazier. It's just like it's all it all just seems like a complete waste. And I, no one I don't think anyone's really talking about it. How like. It's not like this is the, you know, conservative ultras or or or, or whatever. It's that they, there's no ideological distance between anyone in the in the party. They agree essentially on on everything. Uh, what they're failing to do maybe is is to promote an actual, you know, uh, solution to some of the problems that they see with with Biden. You know, you, you don't you don't actually hear a lot about what they're going to do about the cost of living or, or inflation like possibly they would have been able to articulate under Paul Ryan maybe you just you just hear all these all these fights that just seem personal and, and, and psychological I just for, for the life of me I just don't understand why any of it is happening yeah do it you, do, oh sorry but you go. do you do you know my theory on that Have we talked about this before with the education system from Reagan um possibly I, I don't remember specifically right now so please present again so my my theory on this is that um reagan in 1983 issued an educational commission um it was one of the first presidential commissions on education to review the the curriculum as it was nationwide and establish a new one because there wasn't really a nationwide singular narrative curriculum um before then so nixon's administration kind of made one and it was very much um america first and patriotism in the classroom and bordering on nationalism in the classroom and that um became the standard for schools in in 83 around the country and then clinton had another commission on education but he didn't really change anything he just had the review and then bush had a review and established no child left behind and changed some of the curriculum standards that reinforced a lot of the nationalism and patriotism in the classroom then so anyone who went to public school 
between 83 and the late 2000s, which is all of our elected officials who are like in their 40s or below, um, they would have gone through very hyper conservative education standards. And I went through the same education standards in public school K through 12. I know what they were taught and what they were taught is that Americans were the only ones at D-Day and that the only thing you need to know about our government is that there are three co-equal branches and checks and balances. Like it doesn't, it's not a good education system by and large. <laughs> and it's very pro-American um, with very little critical questioning of what it is to be an American or um, America's role in history, especially global history. We do very little on global history that isn't America-centric in some way. Um, I remember in high school, I asked what the Korean War was about, and my teacher literally said, it's practically just Vietnam, and we're doing that in a few weeks, so we don't need to cover it. And then when I got to grad school and started studying the Korean War, I was like, ooh, we definitely should have touched on this, <laughs> at least a little bit. <laughs> so the, the public school education in the U.S., like, it is a joke online, but it's also like a joke in reality. It's not it's not balanced at all. And I think what happened with the Republican Party is that the Reagan Republicans all knew what they were doing. They knew they were lying to people about like Morning in America and all of their, we're for the worker and the war on drugs and everything. They knew they were lying and hurting people. They've admitted as much since, but through the kind of public school system that a lot of people have gone through and it's even worse in like private schools that are funded by um christian nationals or like super nationalistic people which a lot of politicians went through those schools as well um they've been fed this narrative their whole life that reagan was right and that america's amazing with very little critical thinking about what any of that actually means so reagan Republicans now genuinely believe in the bullshit that they're saying. Like, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene actually believes the shit she says. And I think that's where the disconnect is. Some of them are smart enough or educated enough or willing to consider a different perspective or a critical perspective and are still conservative by choice and by ideology. And that's fine. Difference of opinion. But some of them have never done that work to actually reinforce why they feel the way they feel, because they've never been challenged on being critical about those opinions. Well, now that you mention it, I think we have talked about this before, but that was a very nice summary. So thank you, Vaughn. Um, you had like half a bottle of wine. Yeah, good job. Um, <laughs> for, for fear of turning this into um, us ranting about the Republicans again, shall we... Um, Shall we close up there on 2022 in the news or, or is there anything else we'd like to touch upon? You know, I, I fear that if I start bringing, you know, this destruction of Warner Brothers into this conversation, Vaughn may be going for another hour. Um, but <laughs> we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. I don't have but, enough time for that. No, I do. It's downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Shall we, shall we finish up then on the 
just the last 12 months on this podcast. And I just want to start by thanking you guys again for everything you guys give to the show and um, what, what a pleasure it is to podcast with you both. So thank you again. And I, I look forward to our adventures in 2023. Um, we did so many different topics this year and had so many different guests and, and covered so much stuff. So um, it's it's hard to say what was kind of highlights for everyone. I'll just run through a, a few of the things that we did. So in ja- January, we had um, a friend and colleague of Vaughn on the show, which was uh, Ellen Schrecker, and that was around American universities in the 60s. Uh, in February, we had Adam Naiman on the show and we were discussing masculinity at the end of history in, in late 90s cinema, and that was that was really fun. Uh, March, we had uh, Jeff Shader and the Vietnam War and the Serpent Papers, um, which was which was good. Uh, we, we enjoyed that one. Uh, May, we had uh, Felix Salmon returning to the show to discuss The Big Short, and that was a lot of fun. Um, really, really enjoyed that one. Felix, always great. Um, Ian Saxine appeared on the, on the show twice. His first appearance was in July to talk about the, the Democrats, and he had some predictions for the midterms, which uh, he was... Uh, reasonably successful with um august uh, we had ian gordon on the show to talk about the, the study of history uh september we had uh chief uh, historian at nasa uh, brian odom to discuss um the, the space race um and that that was fascinating uh, it's been a, a long project of mine to get that one through so that was great um october we we talked about cuba uh with john grombeck uh, tedesco and that, that was really fun i didn't know too much about Cuba going into that, so that was great. And then November, Ian Saxena returned to uh, talk about his triumphs and his predictions and talk about the midterms and the success there for the Democrats. And then on the sort of the the, the other episodes we did, uh, well, we had uh, our friend of the show, uh, Dominic, come and talk about uh, MCU and modern cinema, which was a lot of fun. Uh, Vaughn's rant around the Cold Civil War, which was, uh, which was a good one. Uh, we had the Conservative and Liberal Halls of Fame, round two. Uh, which wasn't quite as uh, crazy as the first round, but was a lot of fun nonetheless. And um, uh, Vaughn, you also presented basically a paper to us on uh, taking the family to Disneyland, which was which was great. Um, so that's a sort of brief summary of, of the, the the show over the last twelve months. Any any particular highlights? Anything stand out? Um, Ellen Trekker. Ellen Trekker stands out. <laughs> Incredible and amazing, and I'm obsessed with her. And I got to meet her twice. <laughs> You did. She came on the show and um, you guys talked and you sort of exchanged emails a little bit. And then you just happened to be in New York. Was it New York you were in? Or, yeah. yeah. And then you, you guys you guys met up and mm-hmm. and had a, 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 had a nice, sweet little walk. Yeah. A nice little walk. Central Park. And you all that all to Toby. So um, I do. Thank you, Toby. It was- oh, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Of course I did that. Um, yeah no yeah 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 of course <laughs> the, the power of toby and the connections he has and his ability to break down down walls and barriers just yeah um that, that was great such a big deal and i still don't think you guys appreciate how big of a deal she is she's fucking massive in my field like in her field it's her field it's not my field it's her your field, field. well that, that didn't take long to take ownership of that to devote <laughs> i'm such a <laughs> Oh, I love her so much though she's just so incredible and smart and we had a moment like it was that was magic to me nothing else has happened this year just do you think there. she <laughs> do you think she'd be interested in coming on for round three of conservative and liberal halls of fame <laughs> I think she would be savage with it. 
<laughs> well, um, when you're talking to her over Christmas, you can uh, present that idea if you wish. I um, should have sent her a Christmas card. Yeah. What are you doing? Oh my god. Send it now and then just say got lost in the post. Card. You can just you can just blame the post office and how incompetent they are. Um that was that was a joke because obviously Yvonne is it was a joke because yeah. they're on strike right now and yeah. we respect that. So we, we, we get shit together, Simon. <laughs> um Toby, any particular memories? Uh, do you remember the podcast? Do you remember you're on a show called Impressions of America? I think this is the first time where I can't really remember episodes. I feel I feel like Cronkite, you know. <laughs> you know after twenty years in the game, well, you know, oh, you got to remind me of of these episodes now, which is great. Uh, but no, I I really enjoyed the episode of NASA. I thought yeah. it was that was tremendous. It was really it was really, really interesting um, to go through across periods and the policy and some some policies that weren't necessarily um led by the the presidents but uh they sort of glummed onto it in order for for pr reasons and i thought it was it was really i thought it was really really interesting episodes and also like one of the great things about uh now is that you know like we get opportunities that come from every single member of the podcast and sometimes we get opportunities that none of us asked for mm-hmm. but they're able to not only fill time but like create really great really great content you know i think yeah. my my like i got into podcasting or whatever by listening to terry gross and npr and i feel now that you know some of the stuff that we we do is m- maybe even tantamount to some of the stuff that i heard on npr mm-hmm. and um yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's great uh, what's what's happening now and and the opportunities that that, that we're getting they just just come out of nowhere and and I think um, people who listen to the to the podcast uh, really appreciate that because sometimes people write in, which is something I never expected uh, to happen to have fans, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it's it's great. It's it's great, and I still remember when Toby was like in, in our group chat and was just like, oh yeah, so there's like this historian, Ellen Trekker, who's like <laughs> interested in coming to the show, at which point the following messages from Vaughn were uh, excited, shall we say. And <laughs> I think there was, there was one moment where Vaughn was like, please, yes, please, please, yes. <laughs> I, I was begging, <laughs> begging you to say yes, because I was like, I don't think you know who she is. And I need to be able to speak to her. <laughs> Because I, I was like Googling, going, oh, yeah, that'd, that'd be an interesting episode. And Vaughn was going, please, please just say yes. Please, can we proceed with this? This will be my Christmas present. Yes. And you guys don't say anything in the episode. Don't embarrass me in front of Ellen. <laughs> Pretty much, because we went in and, you know, normally we'll, we'll split the questions. And I, I'm often kind of leading the, the sort of interview type questions. And then we sort of go from there. And I basically just handed the reins over for, to Vaughn, for Ellen. And um, I basically just said hello and then Vaughn duct taped my mouth shut for the rest of the episode <laughs> and then had a conversation with one of her academic heroes. But it worked out really well, I think. And uh, I hope we didn't embarrass you too much. Um, we did not at all. We talked about you afterwards on our date. I, uh, I, I mean, I, that uh, is no surprise that Toby and I, <laughs> Toby and I are the, the, the subject of it. Of a story is talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have been so fortunate, though, with with 
Well, what about Simon did you talk about on the tape? No, Simon and you. We talked oh. about both of you. No, no, I don't like that. It's- <laughs> <laughs> no, we, t- we talked about how this podcast came to be and um, how you guys didn't speak on that episode because she thought that was odd. And I was like, well, that was for me. So Because she had listened to one of our other episodes where I yelled about Big Bird. Yes. <laughs> what, a, what a horrifying thing. Um, anyway, yeah, we, we talked about all of those things. But she that's, really, that's she cool. I, she I do I do like the idea of me and Toby a few years ago being like, yeah, we should really start, start a podcast to talk about like Walter Cronkite and Nixon. Mm-hmm. And then it all led to you having, well, first of all, you shouting about Big Bird. And then uh-huh. that leading into talking with Alan Schrecker and then you sort uh-huh. of having to defend myself and Toby for apparently not being able to speak in that podcast <laughs> and you having to say that, that was strategic because yeah. <laughs> we we were not um, we were not best placed to talk. Whereas, no, um, no, it was because I wanted to talk to her as much as possible. <laughs> and I did. And I, I thank you both for that opportunity. That was wonderful of you both to just let me have a moment. Just have a moment. Um, I had, but we we really have been so fortunate with incredible listeners and incredible guests and incredible people who reach out to us and recommend episodes mm-hmm. or um, topics or or say like I have this book coming out. Can we do an interview and and get into like the nitty gritty of something? We really love when that happens. Um, yeah. So if you if you do have an idea or a book coming out that we can help with promoting um or get your ideas out there please do reach out and we can we can have conversations about these things yeah and and toby is fairly flexible when it comes to us charging fees so we we are you know willing to take (laughs) you know all sorts of manner of payments uh be that financial or just you know um you know political bending of ears later on in the future when we require favors so um (laughs) we don't charge our guests simon just charges me (laughs) <laughs> that's true <laughs> taxation on you talking yeah. um <laughs> right shall we finish up there is there anything else you want to, to say in the last 12 months or, or the, uh, uh, anything else um i think that we were all having trouble remembering impressions episodes because we've done so many episodes of other podcasts as well this year well that that's true um one of us in particular has become something of um a mainstay on the, the podcast circuit and oh no i didn't mean other ones i meant ours i was going oh, right okay well there's ours as well yes i mean we we, we have, all have multiple podcasts now we have multiple podcasts we have the golden age of murder which toby you're um still moving through the boards and getting your uh, getting your people to talk about and, and discussing some really fascinating cases Is there any anything in particular you want to, to talk about with the golden age of murder i don't know um the Golden Age of Murder, yeah, it's going on, going on strong. Um, yeah, me and Simeon, and we we're getting uh, comedians on. I think uh, that's kind of uh, where I want to go with it because, like Simeon, he just has all the stuff in his head, mm-hmm. and and I'm able to shepherd the episodes along. But you know, we, I think we've got some some funny people. We had Yogi Palawal on to talk about the state of washington and it, i think it was a really funny uh episode and and uh, yeah i think 
amongst the grisly killings and you know you know all the, all this stuff i think uh, we we are having some humor in it as well and i think that's that's just the plan going forward with the, with, the, with the podcast and also i think i know that we're going to go through the timeline and then we're going to be start doing some we're going to do a short series on a particular killer and then we're going to do some ad hoc episodes so mm-hmm. i actually think that there's potential for 50 podcasts out of this which which i didn't envision at the start but i i know uh is probably where we're going to go with it which which i'm also very happy happy about that's fantastic and yeah myself and vaughn um with our friend steel we have um joy of star wars which has uh, taken a little break while um vaughn tours all the other media that is out there (laughs) But as, as soon as Vaughn is back, we will be going back to to shouting about Star Wars and um, the, the greatness of the prequels. Um, and um, we also have um, Hollywood in Focus, where we sort of had a, a kickoff episode, which will be coming uh, hopefully uh, next year. And now it's been mentioned in Hollywood Post. Um, that, sorry, Hollywood. Now it's been mentioned in the Washington Post. I can really start to um, beat Vaughn over the head with that and get the yes. series going. That was that was part of the impetus for that, so that I get my show together. <laughs> yeah, we've we've had so many wonderful other opportunities to do other research and get into some different topics um, outside of the post-war through today period in American history. So it's been it's been really fun. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I suppose that there's nothing more to say other than yeah, uh, Merry Christmas to all our listeners and, and thank you to everyone who listens to the show and any, anyone who's contacted us or shared it with anybody. It's, it's been great interacting with, with, with uh, listeners over the last um, year and, and beyond. And um, yeah, Merry Christmas. And, and to my, my wonderful co-hosts, Merry Christmas to you guys as well. And uh, I look forward to us doing all manners of things in the, in the next, uh, next year as well. So um, yeah, I guess we should probably, probably end there unless there's any final messages you guys want to get out. Don't forget to watch Sexy Kurt Russell Santa Claus in the Christmas Chronicles on Netflix. That's just an annual reminder for everyone. Just <laughs> can't get enough of sexy uh, Santa. Um, okay, cool. Well, um, that's 2022 for us. And um, yeah, thanks again for listening, everyone. Um, we'll have another episode for you at some point. We're not quite sure when. Um, and uh, until then, yeah, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Take care and thanks for listening from from Vaughn, from Toby and myself, Simon. Um, Take care. Goodbye. Happy holidays.